once I received this gospel, it's burning in my chest. It's like, it's like what Jeremiah said. It's like fire in my bones. And I'd rather die preaching it than to stay alive in silence of it. Would you turn to Colossians chapter 1, please? Colossians chapter 1, this is the fifth message, I believe, um, on this marvelous book, the book of Colossians, and we're still in the introduction. We're still in the introduction where Paul has laid down the foundation of Christianity. It's just simple, mere synopsis, a summary of what Christian living is about. So I trust that you are. In Colossians 1, and we'll be reading once again from verse 3 down to verse 8. So Paul says, and thus the word of God says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Just a quick way of review. We looked at verses 3 and 4, and it is a stripped-down, condensed version, a bare minimum of really Christian living. It is in it the confidence that Paul had that those Colossians were truly saved. And on what basis did he conclude that they were saved? It was two irreducible pillars of true conversion. Number one, their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And out of this faith, through this faith, Secondly, the real sacrificial love for all the brethren. Now, how did they develop faith and love, those virtues? He moves on from verses 5 to 8, and he gives us different aspects of the gospel that saves. And he tells us that those wonderful virtues are not cultivated in, in vacuum. No, they're grounded in that gospel. Last week, we looked at verse 5, and we found that faith and love are the flowers that grow and blossom in the soil of the gospel, right? Namely, hope. Hope that this Jesus, who conquered death for us, who ascended to the highest of heaven, he will come back for us to bring us home. Hope that each one of the redeemed saints will get a physical resurrected body. Glory be to God, right? Inheritance, eternal rewards, crowns. This is our confident expectation. Praise be to God for the hope that we have that is laid up for us in heaven. And how do we appropriate this true gospel? How do we receive it how do we become recipients of this gospel that saves we found that we must understand it it must go through the faculty of our mind we must hear it understand it learn it and then come under its full authority by believing in it in other words everything hinges around the gospel our justification sanctification, glorification. Basically, the gospel ought to permeate all aspects of a believer's life. So much that I showed you last week that in this passage, the entire passage is really about the gospel and the effect of the gospel in our lives. 
And the question was, why? Why did Paul do that? Why does he front load his introduction to the Colossians in this epistle um, by reminding them of the gospel and the effect of the gospel in people's lives? We remember those Colossians were first-generation Christians like most of us are. They were young believers who lived in a pagan city. And false teachers were yet about to begin to dig their claws in this church. And though the main attitude, the main idea of this passage, if you look at it carefully, is gratefulness towards God. And we see this in verse 3, where Paul begins that passage, this paragraph, by thanking God. Yes, Paul is praising God for the gospel and for the effect of the gospel in this little church. However, the underlying tone is a loving warning. Brothers, watch out. And it's as Paul as if he's saying to those Colossians that if the gospel you heard is so powerful that it saved you and it's bearing fruit in you and it's uplifting you, then why would you ever get yourself led astray by other false teaching that would not give you even one-tenth of what this gospel does? Brothers, this is what I love about the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we don't need to replace it with something else that may even look better or more clever. We don't. It is what it is, the message of truth. The gospel is absolute. It is authoritative. It is reliable. Which means... And as we're going to study later on in, the, in this book, later on, that, that we don't need visions and dreams to give us somehow better knowledge than what the gospel can in order to draw us nearer to God. No. Right? All we need is the gospel. It is sufficient, as many would say, that it's, it is Easy for children to understand, and yet at the same time, it can take the greatest theologian's lifetime to comprehend the fullness of it. And so, Paul here is highlighting the profundity of the gospel, the amazing power found. In this gospel. Why? It is as though to compel the Colossians and even us as Saving Grace Bible Church to cling to nothing else but the truth that is found in this gospel. So how do we respond to this? Well, today we'll, we'll continue to uncover some glorious truth about the gospel. And by God's grace, what we want to do is we want to let the word of God continue to dismantle false ideas that we may have developed in our minds that are contrary to the word of God, i.e. even more misconceptions to destroy. Okay, that's the purpose of this message. We're going to do this in three points. Number one, the expansion of the gospel. And number two, the regeneration through that gospel. And number three, the transformation of the gospel. We'll take it one at a time. First, the expansion of the gospel. In other words, this good news of Jesus Christ by design, by God's design, it is to be exported worldwide. And I can't wait for next week to see this in the life of, of Epaphras. It is to be exported worldwide. It's how God intended this for this gospel. It is this gospel transcends all barriers. And so we read verse six and the first word, which. Now this word which is basically referring to verse. Five, the word of truth, the gospel. And it says, which has come to you just as 
in all the world. Now, when you read this bit, and then you say, well, which has come to you just as in all the world, what, do, what would we conclude? Well, we would almost conclude that what Paul is saying here is that this gospel has already gone worldwide. It's done and dusted, right? Everyone already heard the truth. But the fact of the matter is, if, you, if you, um, we dissect that word has come to you even more, we find it that it's, all right, it's present participle. What present participle means is that literally how it ought to be read is that the gospel has come to you, that's right, and is coming to you. It's in the process of coming to you just as it is coming and it is spreading throughout all the world. This true gospel, it's, it's alive. It's something organic it's in and of itself living thing and it's growing expanding and it's swelling up so what paul is what paul is not saying here is that it's not that every person in every location in the whole wide world was evangelized to no but that the gospel is making headway across Ethnic, cultural, national, geographical barriers. Nothing is stopping this gospel from expanding. What's Paul saying here to the Colossians? Just to say to them, you brothers need to understand that this body of doctrine that has come to you, this message of truth, it's, it's not like your old pagan religions that you held Onto that is confined within your own culture. And, and it's like nobody else knows anything about it. No. I mean, this goes to all false religions, by the way. That they're confined within a space of their own cultures. That's where they exist. All false religions the same way. I mean, take Islam, for example. Though we know that Islam is expanding, but how is it expanding? It's by sheer force, by sheer violence. And, and when it's expanding, what is it exactly that is expanding? The Islamic culture would expand. And as culture expands, so also the false religion would expand. But not so with the gospel. These Colossians were part of a grand movement orchestrated by God himself, the God of that gospel, and it is unstoppable and it's taking the world by a storm. It's like a, um, a global tsunami, if you like. If you think about it, and if you read the book of Acts, you find that Paul, right, he, he's a, uh, the apostle of the Gentiles, and he took that gospel to where? To Macedonia or to Achaia. Um, but long before um, he went to Rome, what happened? Paul tells us that he was chained, but the word of God is not chained. It doesn't rely on the apostle of the Gentiles, no. And so Rome was evangelized to, and not by Paul. And so were the cities of Colossae or uh, Philippi and churches were established in the name of Jesus all around in Asia Minor, in India, in Africa. The whole world was turned upside down and salvation song is sung by thousands of homes. Freedom in Jesus Christ is received everywhere, even till this day. Men and women are set free from addictions. In other words, if the world imprisons Paul, uh, this will not hinder the gospel from spreading. Because when Paul is down, God is able to raise Epaphras and Archibus and Onesimus, as we've learned, to preach that same gospel to the Colossians. And God is able to raise out of the stones 
thousands of Peter the Apostle and Bartholomew and Matthias and many people would go worldwide preaching the same gospel. Matthew 24 verse 14, Jesus tells us that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations and then the end shall come. And not just to hear the gospel, but they will one day bow their knees before Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And no government, no persecution, no demonic power would ever be able to stop the expansion of this message found in the gospel. This message of hope. So the question is, brothers, is not whether the gospel will expand or not. It is expanding already as we speak. The question is, are we going to be participating in that expansion? Brothers, if the gospel, this truth of the good news of Jesus is like a blanket that is getting rolled out from one end of the world to the other end, and in a process is choking down um, uh, all these heresies, why would we ever give attention to the philosophy or the human wisdom of this world? Let us. Hold fast to the good news of Jesus. Let us defend it. Let us advance this gospel. Let us preach it to our spouses, to our children. Because it's expanding. And even if your son, your daughter will come to you and would say to you, Mom, Dad, why are you, why are you speaking to me about Christ all the time? Why are you doing that? We would say to our children, son, you don't understand. Once I received this gospel, it's burning in my chest. It's like, it's like what Jeremiah said. It's like fire in my bones. And I'd rather die preaching it than to stay alive in silence of it. Okay. And I say, well, I get it. I get it. The gospel is powerful enough that uh, the information in this gospel will spread worldwide. I get it. I get it. No, it is not. We're not just talking about some information because the gospel is not just about information. It's about transformation. First, we'll talk about the regeneration through the gospel that leads us to being transformed. The regeneration, that's number two. The regeneration through the gospel. So we continue on it, and it reads, It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, also since the day you heard of it. Bearing fruit and increasing. The true gospel, again, is not just about information. It's not even just some set of rules. It's not a stagnant system of do's and don'ts that somehow all Christians have to comply with. The true gospel is so powerful that once it's embraced, what does it do in you? It produces fruit. It produces fruit. Any false convert that only has a mental assent to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ comes to this passage, comes to this portion of Scripture. And because he is lifeless, given that he's a false convert, and then he would choke. On this passage. Because it demands fruit bearing. Let us be crystal clear. Brothers and sisters. 
This is so crucially important. We cannot stress it enough behind the pulpit that not everyone who calls himself a Christian is actually a Christian. Not everyone who claims that he is saved is actually saved. No matter who his father is, his mother is, no matter how many times he's been coming to church or even a member of a church. We must understand this reality. We must understand it more than anything else in this world, in this, in this age, in this present age. There must be a change in our lives, growth, if we are truly, genuinely born again. I say this because I've been talking to someone during this week. One who once upon a time led Bible studies, prayed, fellowshiped. But over time he he walked away from the faith. Walked away. And what I mean from the faith, I mean his devotion to God. Devotion to God. It's gone. And it's not that he is increasing in fruit bearing. On the contrary, he is decreasing in what is may have seemed one point in time in his life apparently as a fruit. But he was always dead when he thought he was alive. And what was alarming is that when I confronted him to examine his salvation, that he's not bearing fruit, that he may not be saved. He was okay with that. He was not troubled at all when he ought to have been terrified. Many people are self-deceived. We need to understand this. Many people are self-deceived. And they think that Christianity is, is only about having their sins forgiven. They come to Jesus to forgive their sins and they get excited for a while. And then what do they do? They walk away and then they live like the world. And they see Jesus like McDonald's drive through You go there, you grab your stuff the good food, and then you walk away and you leave the same way as you have come. Now, don't misunderstand me. Yes, these people, they may not be taking drugs, they may not be robbing banks, but their mind is filled with worldliness and their hearts mostly consumed with what will perish away. And their priorities are totally contrary to God's priorities. They may be doing the right thing, but their priorities are not consistent with God. You speak to them and you say, brother, where is, where is your sacrificial love for the saints? Where is your personal devotion to the Lord? Where is your influence over the body with your gift? Are you growing, brother? Are you growing? Are you increasing in fruit bearing? Why? Why are you almost virtually unemployed in, in the kingdom of God? And they justify themselves away. Oh, it's just, uh, it's just my education. It's just my job. I've got to pay off my mortgage just for a season. Oh, okay. Give you a benefit of the doubt, brother. And you wait. You wait for two, three, even five years. And then when you come and you speak to them and you ask them, they come up with the same old excuses. Yeah, they may have read a couple of Christian books over the time, but they haven't grown one inch 
in their devotion to God or to the saints. And they give you 1,001 promises that after they finish this or that, that they will commit to grow. But never do. They never do. Please don't, don't misunderstand me. I am not standing here to condemn anyone. I'm just a preacher who doesn't want his hands to be stained with, with the blood of those that think in their mind that they're heading to heaven when in reality they're heading to hell. I'm not condemning anybody. I just want to let you know what the word of God says. Lest anyone will be deceived. Please read this passage again, but this time with fear and trembling. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since. Since when? Read the text. Since the day you will finish your education, since the day you will pay off your mortgage, what does it say? Since the day you heard of it. If the gospel you came to believe in is not producing fruit in you, let me tell you, you are believing in the false gospel. It is not the true gospel, according to this passage. The sign of the true gospel, here is the word, it is constantly, 24-7, on the clock, bearing fruit, increasing, both internally and externally, individually and collectively as a body of Christ. Whether fruit, loving the saints, or fruit of humility, or the point is it's guaranteed. What is guaranteed? You know what is guaranteed? That the true gospel, once it is embraced, it will produce fruit in you. Now, is the gospel producing fruit in you? Is it increasing? Are you growing? Yeah, you may fall into sin and though you may be struggling with certain temptations, but are you showing spiritual growth? Now, someone might say, yeah, I guess I have to pull myself by the bootstraps and drag my feet into serving others. You know, I'm probably going to have to pick and choose a couple of brothers or sisters and fellowship with them so I can show that I'm a Christian. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard work. I don't enjoy it. When I'm around the brethren, I kind of feel odd. So I don't want to kind of be there, but I, I guess I've got to do it. Why? Who offended you? Oh, no, no, no. N nobody offended me. It's not, it's not about them. It's just, I just don't want to be there. It's just too many people and they just talk about stuff and I, I don't know. I've, but I guess I've got to do what a Christian got to do. You know, it's hard being a Christian these days, if you know what I mean. No, friend. No. You're not reading the text properly. You've got to read the text carefully. Please note the preposition in. Let's read that sentence in the middle of that verse. It says, even as it, what's it? The gospel. It has been doing in you. The gospel is doing something. in. It's not you that is doing something. To you, it's the gospel, and the gospel is doing something inside of you. That's where Paul is looking at. Paul is 
um, speaking of the effect of the gospel. And when he does that, he's not placing external cameras outside like, you know, the, the big brother is watching and he's observing what you do from the outside. No, he's calling you to look internally inside of you. Is the gospel internally changing you from the inside out? Is it? From purity to purity, from gratefulness to greater gratefulness, from love for God and for his people to greater love for God and his people. Is it, is it doing that in you? You can't do that on your own, by the way. It's not that you are doing it. It's the gospel. How does that work? What, what does that mean? What does it mean that the gospel is doing that in you? I mean, if you have two people and they're hearing the same gospel, how is it that one person is internally increasing and being more fruitful and the other is not? What does that mean? In other words, just to keep it simple, so we'll make sure that we understand what the text is saying. I want to ask, how does the gospel constantly bear fruit in you? Now, I want to, I'm going to read a passage in First Peter, First Peter chapter 1, reading verses 20 through 23. And then I'm going to carefully explain this answer, the answer to this question. Now, the verse says this. First Peter 1.22 says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. It's a sincere love. Okay. Now, how is this possible? What is it that causes that love for one another from the heart? Verse 23, for you have been born again. That we're regenerated, born again. There's a new birth that we're talking about here. And now, what is it that caused the born again? Let's draw the, the dots together. You come at the end of it and it says, through the living and enduring word of God. That's the gospel. The word of God is the gospel. And it's here, it speaks of it as something that is alive. Living, living, sharper than two-edged swords. It is powerful. This is regeneration through the gospel. So, the gospel was preached. They were born again. And so they could love one another from the heart. Let me explain. Let me explain. I want to make sure that we all understand this because it's so important to get it right. It is so dangerous to get it wrong and then be misled to think you're on the way to heaven and you're not. Now, these Colossians, these people that we're talking about here, they were, they were in a pagan culture like ours, just like ours, right? They loved their lust for riches. They loved the lust of the flesh. They were enslaved to sin and pride. They were greedy. They were selfish sons of Adam. All right, And no one could ever pull them away from that enslavery, from their self-idolatry. They were lost souls. And may I add one more thing? They were all, like all unbelievers, haters of God. They were haters of God. As all unbelievers are. You say, no, no, no. Not, not all unbelievers hate God. I mean, some people do and others don't. Okay? I mean, I don't wake up in the morning and, I don't know, have a word God there and try to throw dart on it and try to burn it. No one hates God. I mean, maybe some, but not all. Unbelievers love the God. That is a figment of their own imagination. But the God of the Bible, they hate it. Okay? They hate it. So if you bring an unbeliever, and you say to the unbeliever, you know what? God loves purity. That's the God of the Bible. He hates your sin. 
He hates your thoughts, your desires. He loves the Ten Commandments and He demands upon you to obey them perfectly. And if you do not obey them, His perfect justice compels Him to punish you by throwing you in hell forever. How do you like that God of the Bible? Unbelievers don't love the God of the Bible whether they do come to church or they don't. It's just the the nature, the corrupt nature. And such were the Colossians. But the gospel was preached. And God, through the gospel, opened their eyes to their miserable, sinful condition. They were convinced that they were worthless sinners. They were beasts in their eyes. Monsters of iniquity. They would have had to cry out, what must we do to be saved? Who would deliver us from the wrath to come? This is the path that every unbeliever would have to go through in order for him to become a Christian. Now pay attention. Verse 6, it says, and understood the grace of God in truth. Since they heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. In other words, it was the power of God through the gospel that enabled them to understand this amazing grace that would save them. What is it that they understood? They would have understood that God extends his undeserving favor. That's grace towards filthy sinners. That God in Jesus Christ is willing to accept anybody that will come to him for salvation. Understood the grace of God in truth means that the free gift, free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, apart from good works, was preached to them. And that God of love enlightened their minds. The irresistible grace, the compelling mercy of God subdued them. It drew them to Christ to believe in Him, in His name as Lord and their Savior. But you know what was going on internally? What was going on internally? When the gospel was preached, God regenerated their hearts. Who took away their heart of stone. He gave him a heart of flesh. He gave him this, his spirit. And this is what happens when the gospel is preached. The spirit of God regenerates a man. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him and cannot understand it. Any man that is born in sin by default does not understand the grace of God. No matter how much he he tries to study it and learn, he will not understand it. So what does God have to do for that man to actually understand it? He would have to change him to make him a spiritual man. So we're not talking about superficial change. We're talking about a deep, radical change from the inside out where you become a new creation in Christ. This is what makes a person a Christian. It is all of the supernatural work of God. It is when God opens the eyes of the sinner where he would see his sin as something so vile, so ugly, so wicked that he sinned against the holy God. And in God, by opening his eyes, would crush him and then would make him a new creature. Since that day, as a, according to the scripture, since the day you and I, brothers and sisters, heard of Jesus Christ and embraced him as Lord and Savior, that day God infused his spirit within you. As the Puritans would say, the life of God in the soul of man. And this is how the gospel bears fruit in you. 
It is the new birth. It is the regeneration through the gospel. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, it is not about you doing hard work, forcing yourself to do what a Christian does. And somehow you will be bearing fruit. No, it's the gospel that bears fruit in you. And how does that work? How do you do that? You've got to be born again. Are you born again? That's the point. That's the question that is that has to be answered. Are you born again? Has God, through the hearing of the gospel, radically transformed, changed your life? Now, you might say, yes, yes, he did. He did that. Have you begun to show fruit? Is your fruit increasing? Is it increasing? Do you know an unbeliever that may exhibit some kind of gentleness, which is a fruit of the Spirit, or some patience, it never increases. He exhibits it, but you see him five years later, and it's the same as it was back then, if not worse. But never grows, never increases. Are you growing? Now, what fruit? And how, what is the process? How does it show itself? What does it look like? To bear fruit, and that fruit increases. What's going on here? Just quickly, we'll just, just address this. That'll be a last point, the transformation. What fruit is Paul talking about, and how does it grow in us? You know, in, in, uh, later on in the same chapter, same Colossians chapter 1, and in verse 10, he repeats these two words again, the bearing fruit and increasing. He says, yeah, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. A true Christian, at the very point of his new birth, he began a new relationship with God. And so, because it's a, a new relationship with God, he would increase in the knowledge of God. He realizes that this God, whom he hated all his life, actually loves him. And has always loved him. That God does not really hate him. But he cares for him. And what does he do? In response to that knowledge of God, he begins to love God. That's the second thing that happens, right? The moment I am a Christian, I begin to want to love God. I begin to want to know what it means to glorify God. And in that process, and in the light of the inner knowledge of God, not mental, but inner heartfelt knowledge towards God, what does he now do? You know what he does? He now he continues sees his sin in his flesh. And he increases his awareness of his own sin. He sees it. He sees it in his thoughts. He sees it in his evil desires. He sees it everywhere. And what does he do? How does he respond to this sin? He hates it. He can, he can no longer bear it. He can sense that his sin is ruining his relationship with God, whom he now loves. He feels like he wants to throw himself in the dust. He's convicted by it. God is convicting him. Yes, once upon a time, he may have loved it. He may enjoyed it. He may hidden it down and kind of wanted to keep it away from his family. But internally, he was at peace with it. But now he hates it. 
And what does he do? The more he hates it, the more he flees to Christ. The more he clings to Christ, he runs back again and again to the cross. He throws all his burden at the feet of Jesus. And he would cry out in from the inner voice of his heart to Christ saying, Christ, wash me. Jesus, with your blood, cleanse me. Heal me. And it's not enough for him to know that he's forgiven. It's not enough. He begins to, to pray for more power, more transforming grace. He pleads with God to strip away anything that would hinder him from loving Christ more. He hates it when he sees that his relationship with Jesus is growing stale, stagnant. He doesn't like that. Why? Because he's a new creation now. And his desire, his greatest desire, is to follow Christ for the rest of his life and to serve him. And as he taps into the heart of Christ, as he gets into the pulses, the drum beats of Christ, he begins to realize, oh, Jesus loves the redeemed saints more than anything else in the world. And he's compelled to love the children of God more fervently. He sees Christ in his brethren. So they mean the world to him. He longs to be with them. To be among them. To fellowship with them. To serve them. No, he wouldn't want to go and fly or go anywhere away from his community of people just so that he can have a more comfortable lifestyle. No way. He wants to be exactly where Christ wants him to be. And he wants him, he wants to grow more and more in pleasing his Savior. This is what the gospel does in all the saints, not some, all the saints of God. You see, Christianity is not just about having sins forgiven, is it? No. It's not just mere information, it is transformation. And it takes the power of the gospel and the power of God to do that in the soul of man. Are you grown? Are you grown? Yeah, you may fall into sin. We understand this. We all do. I just explained to you how a, a believer sees his sin. It's not that he does not sin, he sees it. But is the gospel, the word of truth, transforming your life, my friend? Is it? Is it showing fruit in your life? Is it increasing? If not, why not? Or even a better question. What should we do about it? What should you do about it if you see that you're really not growing? A, live in denial. That's not going to help you. It's not going to help anybody. B, admit to it but get really offended and get caught up by being offended and then put a full stop to this chapter and move on. No. No. I'll tell you what you should do. You should tremble before God. You should dread the fact that you're not bearing fruit, that you're not showing any evidence that you are saved. And then you tell God, I don't see that I have this transformed life. I'm not changing. I'm not, I'm not growing. Am I even born again? 
Cry to God to have mercy upon your soul. Tell him, God, breathe in me the breath of life. Awaken me from my deadness. Make business with God. Tell him, God, give me Jesus now to be my Lord and my Savior. Now, not tomorrow, not next week or next month or when I grow older or pay off my mortgage or finish my... Do it now. Say, God, if I don't have Christ now, there's no hope for me. What, what chance do I have? What confidence would I have that I'll have him later? Give me Christ now or I will perish. May this be the attitude of everyone who sees himself failing this test. And brothers, praise God if you see yourself growing. Praise God. But I call upon you, grow all the more. Anything outside of what I just explained today is excess fat, excess weight that will not help you to run the race. If you have been growing, praise God. If you're not looking back in the past at one point in time and you say, well, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm born again because such and such day I gave my life to God. No, you're judging yourself today by the fact that you are growing. If you see that you're growing, let me tell you, please throw away excess weight. Don't carry with you any excess weight. Run the race by sticking to what God is doing in your heart. Love God. Get to know God. Love Him. And in the light of loving Him, hate your sin. Throw yourself in the dust. Have a look at your sin in your actions, in your decisions, in your desires, in the lust of the flesh. And hate what you see. And thus run to the cross. Cling to Jesus. Hold on to Him. Hide in his wounds. Praise God for the blood that was shed that cleansed you from your sin. And beg God, beg God that now, not next week, not after you finish your education, but now you grow all the more. All the more. May we outdo one another in our passion for Christ in the effect of the gospel in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, your word is powerful. It's sharper than two-edged sword. It is living. It's alive. And it's invading nations and tribes, villages, and hearts of men and women. And oh, how we beg you, Lord God, that your gospel would invade the souls of Saving Grace Bible Church and those that are among us who have never tasted the sweetness of Jesus. Please, we open our homes for your powerful gospel to invade our children, to invade our wives and husbands. Yes, Lord, to even invade us. We lay bare at the feet of this gospel. And we pray, Lord, that this gospel would have way through us to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.